All right, Jesse, last week's show was a clarion call to be wary of hateful rhetoric. What's the story this time around? When a newlywed declares her charming new husband missing, the authorities soon find out that they are hunting a con man who may indeed be a murderer as well. Decades later, the same man will be connected to Massachusetts' most enduring murder mystery. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about horrifying decisions, cascading consequences, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. We also have the brand new kick-ass Red Flags Everywhere sticker. Uh, So please go ahead and post a review, send us a screenshot, and we'd be so happy to send that sucker out to you. If you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and goodies. Speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons. Welcome to Molly G, Nicolette G, and Kim D. Tex J, Liz B, and Lucy B, Anna D, Kayla B, and Marissa H. Thank you guys so much for joining us on Patreon, and thank you everyone else for joining us this very last week of 2022. I hope that you guys all had an amazing year, and Andy, I am really excited to tell you this story as our year-end capper. Well, I'm very excited. Do you have a glass of wine? I have a coffee with a shot of rum chata in it. That's what we're going with here. I have all of my beverages separated. So I have my coffee, my wine, and my water. Yeah, this is nice. I feel like the time between basically Christmas and New Year's is airport rules. Totally. Yeah, it's like it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. You can have a drink. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, I hope you guys had a good holiday. This case I have been percolating on for a long time. I actually read about it originally in one of Anne Rule's books, which I know we talked about another case that I discovered through Anne Rule last week. We are back with Anne Rule. This time the book was called Smoke, Mirrors, and Murder. And the story within the book was called The Antique Dealer's Wife. So The Antique Dealer's Wife is the story. And it was just a really fascinating, shorter case that she talks about. And I dug into it because I was fascinated about the people involved in this case, even though it was a relatively older one. And then it turns out, because there was a name in it that sounded kind of familiar, when I started Googling and doing a little bit more research, that it was tied to one of the most famous cold cases in the United States, the Lady of the Dunes. I remember that one. Exactly. Yeah. It's just recently she's been identified and all of the strings come together in a tight little Christmas bun here, guys. So I think without further ado, we should get into it. 
Evelyn Emerson had been rejuvenated by love. At 40 years old, she was blonde, petite, and had the looks of a woman much younger than her years. Evelyn had been charmed with many gifts throughout her life. A wealthy family and a good upbringing, a fulfilling career in dealing antiques. But love had not been one of the gifts that she had just been given. That was until she had met the handsome and debonair Raoul Guy Rockwell. Evelyn had met the 45-ish-year-old Raoul Guy in a professional capacity, as he, too, was an antiques dealer. She was absolutely fascinated by his interesting past, his eye for detail, and his ability to find a diamond in the rough. Not to mention the fact that he had been awarded a Fulbright scholarship that would help fund a trip to Portugal and Africa to study the religious significance of Ashanti weights, an area of specialty for the good-looking collector. Though Evelyn had been immediately swept away by Raoul's movie star good looks and 6'3 frame, they had kept it platonic until Raoul's wife had left him. Raoul had leaned on her in the hard months that followed, and friendship had quickly developed into something romantic, sexual, and then forever. The couple was married only six months after meeting, and only three days after Raoul's divorce had gone through. Whoa. I'm gonna say that's two love murder red flags right on the field, right away, and we're right after each other. And we're not even out of the intro, you guys, so you know this is gonna be a roller coaster. The groom had almost immediately left on another adventure, this time trekking into Canada to purchase a treasure load of rare indigenous artifacts and antiques. Now, Evelyn had begged him to be able to go with him. She wanted to go on these adventures with him, and the promise to go to different areas of Africa and Portugal was kind of what had fueled her wanting to get married to him so they could do these incredible trips together. So it was only a few days after they'd gotten married when he's like, oh, I just had this amazing opportunity and I'm going to be going to Canada so I can purchase this rare treasure trove of indigenous artifacts. But you can't come with me. It's just not safe. He said that it wasn't entirely legal what he was doing, which another red flag here. And he didn't know if he was going to get in trouble trying to smuggle the artifacts back into the United States. Furthermore, any time that you're going to be spending this amount of money and you're going to be buying something priceless, there's always the possibility that pirates or thieves of some nature could set upon you. Oh, yes. The daily struggle of pirates. (laughs) It was in the Admiral book. It was said that he was specifically worried about pirates apparently land pirates because he's just going from washington state to vancouver up there it's a daily concern i'm often <laughs> dodging my way out of pirates when oh, i'm at antique los malls. angeles pirates yes <laughs> well you totally understand as somebody who owns basically an antique shop yourself absolutely i'm telling you <laughs> pirates i'm wielding pirates all it's day like a video game yeah just bop a pirate So she was a little upset by this, but she totally understood. Raoul had left mere days after their July 29th, 1960 wedding with $10,000 of her mother's money in his pocket to buy the artifacts with the promise to return on August 6th or 7th at the latest. Number four. That's that is number four, because especially 1960, that's more like 100 grand. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough if it was 10 grand, but that's 10 grand in 1960. 
When a week passed with no word from her new husband, Evelyn feared the worst. Had her beloved been beset by pirates? Was he lying injured somewhere in Canada? Or worse, dead? She contacted the police and filed a missing persons report. Had something horrible happened to Raul? Or had Evelyn been betrayed? I'm going to go ahead and say that Evelyn's been betrayed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's an outside opinion. I don't think you're really going with a long shot there. Today's year-end episode will take us on a wild journey with a truly dastardly villain better suited to a movie script than even a true crime podcast. Hearts will be broken, money will be stolen, lies will be told, and a minimum of three innocent lives will be taken by the time we reach the end of the saga of Raul Guy Rockwell, a.k.a. Guy Moldovan. Not to mention, in a shocking twist, the answer to one of the United States' most famous cold case mysteries will be solved, at least somewhat. So we have a lot to get into today, Andy. So I'm going to jump right back in with talking about Raul Guy Rockwell. So this guy with the tongue twister name was a bit of a mystery. He had appeared on the arts and antique scene in Seattle, Washington in the 1950s, looking a lot like the matinee idols of the time. He appeared to be in his early to mid 40s, though no one knew for sure. Raul set up shop in a ramshackle three-story house. He covered every inch of the floors with beautiful oriental rugs, and he outfitted the windows with colorful stained glass that was custom-made. Raul's impressive collection was more than your standard antique shop objet d'art. He frequently traveled to foreign countries, including Africa, Europe, and Canada, to source unique artifacts and one-of-a-kind pieces for his clients. Raul lived on the second floor of the shop with his wife, Manzanita, a fiery redhead, and Manzanita's 18-year-old daughter from a previous marriage, Dolores. Manzi, as her friends called her, had fallen deeply in love with Raul a few years prior and had left her husband and three children to run off with the dashing antiques dealer. Wow. She did. Manzi's husband had done all that he could do to woo her back and restore their family, but she was truly Gonsville for Raul. The new couple lived in sin together for two years before Manzanita's husband reluctantly agreed to a divorce. As a stipulation of the separation, the younger two girls stayed with the husband and the eldest, Dolores, who by that time was 18 years old anyway, was allowed to live with Manzanita and Raul while she attended college. Manzanita was not the first and nor would she be the last to be swept off her feet by the fascinating Raul Guy Rockwell. Raul was exotic, interesting, and the life of every party. He claimed to be from Saint-Tropez, France, and said that he immigrated to the United States at 17 years old to attend the University of California. He said that after he graduated college, he joined the United States' war efforts and fought on the front lines. However, it was noted that not only did Raul have zero accent, no French accent whatsoever, The years that he claimed to be fighting on the front lines did not match up with the years that World War II or the Korean War were active. It like awkwardly kind of fell in between those two wars. So it would suggest, of course, that Mr. Rockwell is a big old liar. Lying about being a war hero might be one of the worst things to lie about. Oh my gosh, yes. 
absolutely astonishing that people are comfortable doing that. Oh God. And guys actually coming home from the war, injured, having PTSD, having gone through hell and back for their country, leaving their families behind. Like, yeah. And then he's just saying, yeah, of course, I fought on the f- not even. And he goes all the way to was fighting on the front lines. Woof. However, with his good looks, charisma, and tall frame, most women who crossed his path did not really probe his story for inaccuracies. It seemed Manzanez certainly didn't, at least not until years after they were wed, already following her divorce. Unfortunately for Manzi, marriage did not stop Raul from entertaining members of the opposite sex in an intimate fashion. Raul, or Rocky, as he was sometimes called, said that entertaining women clients was just part of his job. Probably the most important part of his job. Yeah, to him. To him. Well, Manzi wasn't crazy about this, she did understand. She also understood that her handsome husband was part of the shop's appeal. Friends thought that she was out of her mind to allow her husband to entertain these so-called wealthy clients all night. But Manzi simply called them silly women and said that she trusted her husband. She did, however, wish that he kept better hours. Raul would open the shop up at 6 p.m. and entertain these women for hours and hours. Wait, I'm dead. That's amazing. So he's like nightlife. He's nightlife antique shop. Because everybody everybody shops for antiques from 6 p.m. to 1 in the morning. (laughs) The peak antique buying time. So she was getting frustrated because she wanted him home. Dolores was home with her as well. She wanted him home for dinner. She wanted him to go to bed with her at night. And she was also getting confused about how Raul could be working so hard, but their balance sheet indicated otherwise. With the shop losing lots of money month after month, Manzanita was finally forced to get a job at the bank to make ends meet because previously she had just been managing their accounts. By March 1960, the tension between the couple was palpable. Neighbors noticed that one glamorous blonde woman driving a fancy convertible was making frequent trips to the shop and Manzi seemed increasingly irritated with Raul. On one visit in early April, friends of the couple had to excuse themselves from hanging out with them because they would not stop bickering. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was just constant. Despite all of this, friends and neighbors were still pretty surprised when Manzanita took off for good, taking Dolores with her. Despite Raul's many, many faults, Manzi had seemed truly, deeply in love with him, and the couple had, when they were good together, seemed to really balance each other out. Basically, Raul was the charming life of the party, while Manzita had kept the lights on and begrudgingly adored her charismatic partner. They had seemed like they had had some sort of understanding. Raul seemed genuinely miserable after Manzanita took off. He told one set of neighbors that Manzi and Dolores were in Canada visiting relatives while they reevaluated their relationship. He remained hopeful that they could reconcile. However, he told another neighbor and friend that Manzanita had actually run off with a man that she was having an affair with. Now, this was truly shocking considering how devoted she had appeared to be to Raul. But it wasn't entirely out of character, given that she had cheated and then left her first husband to be with Raul. Well, her track record as a faithful wife wasn't entirely spotless, her reputation as a reliable employee certainly was. 
Manzanita was honest, punctual, and never called out sick since the day she had started work at the bank. So her employers were absolutely mystified as to why she would stop coming to work and effectively quit without a word of warning. Likewise, Dolores's professors were confused to why the bright and responsible student had stopped attending classes. Go ahead and say that's a couple more red flags. Uh, I'd say. When it became clear that Manzanita was not returning, friends of the couple said that a depressed Raul went on weeks-long drinking binges, hardly ever opening the antique shop, and basically getting intoxicated all day into the night. However, after a couple months, he seemed to pull himself together. He filed for divorce and applied and won a Fulbright scholarship. At least this is what he's telling them. He also began romancing 40-year-old Evelyn Emerson, a stunning and wealthy antiques dealer that he had met shortly before Manzi's disappearance. The couple got hot and heavy, and he proposed marriage to her only a couple months into the relationship. Raul suggested that they could get married as soon as his divorce came through, and then they would go on to Portugal and areas of Africa together for his studies, and kind of like a combined honeymoon adventure. Evelyn jumped at the opportunity. In preparation for their voyage, she sold her antique shop as well as her inventory at auction and socked away the cash to finance part of their extended trip. Wow. On July 26, 1960, Raul's divorce from Manzanita was granted, and three days later, Evelyn and Raul were married in a small ceremony in Evelyn's parents' living room. Almost immediately, though, Raul had some very important antiques dealer artifact poacher business to attend to. He apologized profusely, but told his blushing bride and new in-laws that he would have to make a quick trip to Canada to acquire a secret hoard of indigenous artifacts. When he came back, he and Evelyn would celebrate in style and then prepare for their adventure abroad. He also said that he owned this yacht that they were going to be sailing on. Oh, and oopsies, looked like my ex, this is what he's saying, Manzanita, stole a whole bunch of my money. And so my lawyer and I are trying to get that back right now. So a lot of my money is just tied up in this divorce and the liquidation of my own antique shop. So can you guys spot me eight grand so I can purchase these priceless artifacts that will never come on the market? Evelyn's rich mother said, I'll do you one better, my wonderful son-in-law. I'll give you 10 grand because you'll obviously need the additional two just to make sure you're totally safe and we don't want you to run into trouble. So again, 10 grand is about 100 grand in today's money. You hear some bad mother-in-law stories. That's a pretty damn nice mother-in-law right there. Yep. So to review, Manzi takes off in early April 1960. On July 26th of the same year, their divorce is finalized because in Washington State at the time, if you filed for divorce and the complainant did not respond after an X, like X amount of months, it just went through. Three days later on July 29th, Raul marries Evelyn Emerson. He takes off to Canada on the evening of August 3rd with the promise to return on August 6th, August 7th at the latest. Well, quel surprise, as he would say, if he was from Saint-Tropez, a week rolled around and the newlywed had yet to call his wife or return. And they've been married for less than two weeks at this point. <sighs> On August 9th, Evelyn, accompanied by her parents, went to the Seattle police to report Raul missing. Given that Raul had such a large amount of cash on his person, there was a real concern that something nefarious had happened to him. 
Evelyn said that she believed him to be traveling to Canada from the Seattle airport at 9 p.m. on August 3rd. However, when the police dug into the case, there was no evidence that Raul Guy Rockwell had taken any flight at all that day. Really? None. There was two potential flights he could have been on, and his name was not on either itinerary. The detective then contacted Raul's bank, and the manager said that Raul had recently been in. He had cashed a $10,000 check, which was that 10 grand check, and then he had withdrawn three grand of his own money from his own joint checking account that he shared with Manzanita. The other thing that was surprising was that Manzanita's name was still on the joint account. When interviewed, Raul's divorce attorney said that he had advised Raul to make sure that the bank rescinded Manzanita's access to the account because he didn't want her to get his money. So he didn't know why he had left her name on it and that Manzanita... I have Manzanita... an idea. <laughs> I have an idea. Andy's raising her hand. Okay. Yes, Miss Andrea? Because he knows that she's not coming for it. <gasps> genius absolutely true that's absolutely correct yes of course yeah so he knows that there's no way she's going to be accessing that money so he didn't listen to his attorney and he didn't bother having the bank take her name off of the account you should definitely listen to your lawyer <laughs> yeah i mean he could have at least gone through the steps too i know Evelyn was still madly in love with Raul and was perhaps in a bit of denial that her new husband had fleeced her and her parents and run off. She really did believe that he might be injured, kidnapped or killed, and she wanted to find him and bring him home. So she and her family spoke to newspaper reporters in the hopes that a front page story featuring a wedding picture of the newlyweds and claiming that she was looking for her handsome husband who had disappeared while on this adventure might spur some leads in locating Raul. Well, the newspaper articles did lead to some new information, but it was certainly not the type of lead that Evelyn had prayed for. Instead, a society woman named Blake came forward to say that she had been having an affair with Raul for months before Manzanita had left him and that he had flown to San Francisco with her on August 4th, the day after he claimed to be going to Canada. Afterwards, he had also abandoned Blake, and Blake was pissed. Blake claimed that in mid-July, Raul had asked her to leave her husband, because she's also married, and accompany him to Portugal, the same trip that he promised his wife that he was going to take her on. Blake decided to go through with it. She went on one last trip to Palm Springs with her husband, which I don't even think she told him goodbye. I think it was mentally in her head their last trip together. And then she made plans with Raul. He bought plane tickets for them to go to California, where they would pick up his yacht that he said he had, and then sail away together. She said that he bought the tickets under the name Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, which is why the police could not find his real name on the docket. And she thought that he was doing this so that her husband couldn't follow them. That's why he used the fake names. Yeah, I know. It's hard when like both sides are being <laughs> shady as hell. Unfaithful. Yeah, I don't really feel bad for Ms. Blake in this situation. No. <laughs> Sorry. The illicit lovers checked into a posh suite at the Mark Hopkins Hotel, but the trip took a turn when Blake came down sick with a bad sore throat. They went to go see a doctor who told Blake that she needed to see a throat specialist. Raul made the arrangements and sent her in a taxi. He said that he had to deal with some business, but he sent her ahead in the taxi to go see the specialist. 
And he said that he had arranged everything and that she was going to have to wait in front of the building for the doctor's staff to come downstairs and summon her. That was the way they're doing this operation in pre-COVID times. <laughs> so she thought this was odd, but she was sick. She was feverish. She trusted this guy. Like, why would he tell her to leave her husband and run away with him? And I don't think she gave him any money. So she's not suspecting anything. So she's sick, shaking on this street corner for a full hour before she finally wanders in and is like, hey, I'm looking for a Dr. Wallace. And they're like, I don't think there's a Dr. Wallace here. She goes to every floor. There's no Dr. Wallace in the building. And so she goes back outside. She grabs a taxi back to the hotel. And she gets back to the hotel and goes up to the room and realizes that he is absolutely gone. And he took some of her things. Wow. What did he take? Like, what was worth taking? Well, he had presented her when she decided to run away with him with this little gold ring. And it hadn't quite fit her. So she had given it back to him so that they could get it sized. He'd also given her at another time a gold coin. And so he had taken those two things back. And then there was like money that she had that was still in the hotel room. And he took that as well to the point where she had no money left. So she had to literally sneak out of the hotel because she couldn't check out because he also hadn't paid the bill. So she snuck out of the hotel and then she had to call her husband and ask him to wire her money so she could get a flight home. I feel like I need to take a shower. I got to tell you, Ms. Blake, that is one karma fairy walk of shame right there. Wow. Karma fairy flight of shame. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Well, Blake was even more angry and shocked when she found out through the police that her lover had been married at the time he abandoned her. Blake said that she knew Evelyn in passing and that she was led to believe that Evelyn was simply another antiques dealer that Raul hardly knew and occasionally did business with and had absolutely no attraction to. Oh, my God. Ruthless. Ruthless. And if you can imagine how bad adulterous Blake felt... Just imagine how cheated poor Evelyn felt, who felt like after all of these years of dating the wrong people, she had finally found her Prince Charming. Well, she, then she just married the wrong people. She had been completely infatuated. And now, in the wake of his infidelity and theft, Evelyn had to come to terms with the fact that she had only known the man that she knew as Raul for six months. And when she really thought about it, in that time, she had learned almost nothing about him. She had no idea where he was really from, what his family was like, or even if he had been married before Manzanita. Yeah, did she even meet his family? Nope. That's a red flag, too. Yeah. This episode should just be called Red Flags. <laughs> this is just red flags everywhere. It's our new sticker. It's just everywhere. The detectives did feel bad for the swindled newlywed, but they were far more concerned with a much bigger question that the missing persons report had opened up, which is, where the hell were Manzanita and Dolores? Yeah. Manzanita had not only not accessed her joint account, she hadn't touched any money nor any other bank accounts that the police could find at all. On September 2nd, 1960, Manzi's ex-husband finally filed a police report claiming that he was concerned about the disappearance of his ex and their eldest daughter. He said that at first he'd assumed that she had just left Raul the way that she had left him, without warning and without contact for weeks. 
after all, they say you get them like you lose them or you lose them like you got them. So at first he was like, that seems like Mandy's MO. So I wasn't really worried about it. But it was weird that his daughter wouldn't be in contact. And as the months did go by, it seemed very unlikely that she would not be in contact or trying to visit her two younger children. Yeah, it's so strange. It's super strange. He said that the first couple months that she was gone, she was truly gone after she left and ran away with Raul. But then after they worked out an agreement and decided to get divorced, she came every month to visit them. And she called, if not daily, like a few times a week. So to be completely gone seemed unlike her at that point. Yeah, even with her habits. Even with her habits, even with the fact that he was a little scorned, he still knew that things were not adding up correctly. So each day that passed, and especially after he found out that Raul had disappeared, he was now extremely concerned. The neighbors and friends of Manzita and Raul were canvassed, and they reported on the varied and conflicting stories that Raul had told following the women's disappearance. Manzanita's employers expressed concern, and her friends said that she absolutely did not have eyes for any other man. I mean, she didn't even have male friends, let alone a single guy that they could think of that would be in her life that would even be a person of interest to her. In fact, a psychiatrist who had treated Manzanita said that she was depressed because she believed that Raul, her husband, whom she loved very dearly, was cheating on her. Raul had been gaslighting her and calling her crazy for suspecting that. And she said that she had finally followed him. And when she did that, she told the psychiatrist that it confirmed her worst suspicions. The doctor later said that she said, I can't live this way. And I told Raul that I knew about his affair and I wasn't willing to accept that and pretend it wasn't happening. I'm going to have a showdown with him to force some kind of a decision. I love him and I'm going to fight for him because I believe our marriage can be saved. The doctor also said that he found Manzanita a rational and reasonable woman who was willing to do whatever she could to win back her husband's affections. Despite making another appointment, when she said this, it was the last time she ever saw Manzanita. Oh no. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andy, I think we've all experienced some challenging times. I remember how confusing and complicated it was to figure out what I wanted to do with my career after we moved back to the East Coast. One of the most unfortunate things about life is that it does not come with a user manual. Oh, absolutely. And navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's career change, new relationships, becoming a parent. 100%. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing we have to a tour guide to help us figuring out this thing called life. That's why we're so excited to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient and accessible anywhere, 100% online. I think one of the largest misperceptions around therapy is that it's only for people who are dealing with some huge issue. I think that we could all use a little tune-up. Totally. The reality is that therapy can be such a positive part of so many different types of people's lives, whether it's dealing with anxiety or depression or working on some sort of emotional healing or just having someone to offload normal everyday stress with. 
As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist at any time. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. Andy, you know dogs are a huge part of our lives. I grew up with dogs. I went on my first date with Nathaniel in part because he had a dog. And now we have another new puppy, a great big old Bernese Mountain Dog named Artemis. Oh, yeah. You guys are a dog family for sure. And family is exactly the right word. Our pets are members of our family, so we shouldn't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Instead, let's give them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs so you can bring out their best life. Nom Nom's made with real whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Our new puppy, Artie, is a bit of a challenging eater. Burners can have a tendency for stomach issues, and we've had to try a number of different diets to get things just right for her, including, you, you name it, like cooking rice, mixing and matching, cooking burger. That's why we love how much care and personalization Nom Nom offers. It makes such a difference for her health and happiness, and her poops are finally all right. <laughs> Plus, Nom Nom comes with money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled trynom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Trynom.com slash lovemurder. That was her last meeting was saying, I know he's cheating on me. We are having conversations about how we can fix our marriage. Most concerningly, neighbors reported a foul smell emanating from the Rockwell septic tank in the weeks following Manzanita and Dolores's departure. When one neighbor inquired to why it smelled so bad, Raul said that he had thrown away some spoiled crab. Then he sealed the septic tank shut and the smell seemed to go away. On September 3rd, 1960, around the time that Manzanita's ex filed a missing persons report, a pair of women's legs washed up on a lakeshore about 150 miles from Seattle. After examination, it was confirmed that the legs belonged to a woman the exact same height, weight, age, and race as Manzanita. Furthermore, close friends of Manzi's described her shoe size and the appearance of her legs and feet. They said that she had large calves and ankles, and she tried to disguise them by wearing shoes too small to lead to an illusion of delicacy. Okay. 
Now, this resulted in really bad calluses and I forget what it's called, but it's like when your little toes are kind of like misformed, like bunions, but really bad ones, essentially. And the body parts that were found matched that description entirely. By this point, they had more than enough to get a search warrant for the antique shop that Manzanita, Raul, and Dolores had also called home. In the kitchen of the living quarters of the antique shop, they found several bloodstains that were near a staircase that went up to the attic. The bloodstains would later be tested and confirmed to be both human and type O positive blood. I looked this up because I was trying to figure out why they could not narrow this down to Manzanita and Dolores a little bit more. Yeah. Now, knowing that it's the 1960s, they don't have DNA. Yep. I didn't know about the rarity of O positive, but I looked it up and it is the most common blood type is O positive. AB negative is the rarest of the eight main blood types with just 1% of donors having it. Wow. O positive is high because it is the most frequently occurring blood type 37% of the population. So Manzi and Dolores were both O positive. But so far, they haven't found bodies, only blood stains. They cannot DNA match them. And now, as we've just found out through Dr. Google, 37% of the population has this. But also, like, why is there blood in your home? All over this house. It gets worse, too. There's more blood than just on the staircase. They also found a dyed red hair on the staircase, which was consistent with a sample taken from Manzanita's hairbrush. And it looked as if somebody with some type of head wound had been dragged up the stairs. That's what the pattern of the bloodstains appeared to be. Inside the attic itself, they said it looked like a butcher shop. Like there was blood everywhere. It covered the rugs. It was on the floors. It looked like somebody had kind of tried to clean it up. There was bloody rags. Somebody had started trying to paint over it on the floors, but had not succeeded. It was just a mess. And even on the parts that were painted, the blood had seeped between the floorboards. So even if there was paint on top, they found the blood between the floorboards. Yeah, just like a real horrible job. A horrible scene. They also found bits of human tissue and bone fragments. That point, they unsealed and pumped the septic tank where they found many body parts, including a uterus, the upper portion of a right ear, one kidney, five pieces of the colon, one section of lung, two sections of rib, partially burned, a forearm, and some hand bones. All of the tissue and bone were consistent with that of an 18-year-old female. Horrible. So that was, of course, Dolores. How did they know to look in the septic tank from the neighbors' complaints? Just from the neighbors saying that they had noticed a smell that was coming from the septic tank and that when Raul sealed it, the smell stopped. And where is Raul during this? Raul's gone. They're doing all of this investigation, I think, in around September because he took off in August. They started looking for him. They started getting information about him in August. And I think it was very early September when they found the body parts. Now, the body parts were washed up 150 miles away, but they seemed to match Manzanita. And then when they started seriously looking at this like a murder case, not just a missing con man, 
that's when they got the search warrant for their home and made this gruesome discovery. I mean, to us, sitting here in 22, 2022, it seems pretty open and shut. But again, there wasn't DNA evidence. Type O positive blood is very common. And there was nothing that could determine conclusively that this was absolutely Dolores and Manzanita. There were no fingerprints. They didn't get hands or the flesh on the hands. They didn't have any other way of sequencing these hairs that they found. They didn't find, obviously, like heads or faces or teeth. So no identifying. Yeah, there was no identifying features. We don't have to go into every way they could have done this, but you're correct. Yeah. In the 60s, like it's so much harder. There was just nothing they could do to even conclusively declare that the women were dead. So the state did not feel like even if they could find Raul, that they could arrest him for the murders, even though who else was murdered and put in his septic tank? Come on. But they said that they could get him dead to rights for stealing from Evelyn's family. Because I think there was some sort of official agreement about how they were going to get their money back or that this was a loan. So this was not just a straight up gift. So he had not performed that contract. So therefore, it was now grand larceny. So they put out a warrant for his arrest for grand larceny, and they're looking for him everywhere. The FBI is involved at this point. Meanwhile, they published notices everywhere asking for more information on Raul Guy Rockwell. And this was published in newspapers across the country. This was like back in the old days, the post office's most wanted men. In late 1960, they finally hit on some sort of pay dirt when Raul's sister-in-law contacted the Seattle PD and told them that the man they were looking for was her husband's brother and his name was neither Raul nor Rockwell. It was Guy Muldivan, and he was 35 years old, not 45, like he was telling people. Wow, that's the first time that's happened. <laughs> first time somebody's added 10 years to their age instead of subtracted. But if he was a young guy trying to be in the antiques field and get people to trust him, that's one field where age and experience matters. Totally. And he could maybe just look older than he is because he's rotting from the inside. I agree with your assessment there. I do. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> Guy had been born in New Mexico and raised in Brooklyn, New York, not Saint-Tropez. Wow. Wow. That's a stretch. That is a stretch. Though they said that his parents had gotten divorced at some point and he was the favorite spoiled child who traveled extensively with his mother. So it's possible he had spent some time there. Guy had also never joined the military, much less served on the front lines due to an ear condition. He had also never attended University of California and actually didn't even have a high school diploma. Guy had taken a semester or two of drama courses, which is when he had taken Raul Guy Rockwell as his stage name. Wow. <laughs> All the world's a stage for him, apparently. So Guy had also been married and even had a child before Manzanita, but his ex was still blessedly alive. She survived and she had taken the kid away from him. So good on her. At some point, he had ended up in California and then he had at some other point moved farther up the coast to Washington State, which is where he eventually met Manzanita and entered the antiques world 
there. None of his family had any idea where he currently was, but his sister-in-law promised to notify the police if he reached out at all. She said that he had previously, back in April, informed them that Manzanita had left him and that he said he was going to come visit because they lived... I think his mom lived in San Diego and they might have still lived in New Mexico at that point, the family members. And so he was supposed to go visit them at some point and he just never showed up. So she said he never showed up. I don't know what to tell you. This was months ago before he even disappeared with Evelyn Emerson. But if he tries to reach out to us, I will secretly contact you. That ended up being unnecessary as Raul Guy Rockwell Moldovan was discovered in New York City where he was living as a beatnik. Can you please give me the exact definition of beatnik? I will look it up in a second. But when I hear beatnik, all I think about (laughs) is that scene in So I Married an Axe Murderer when Mike Myers is like wearing the black turtleneck and he's at the coffee shop and he's like, whoa, man, whoa, man. It's like. Just imagine a bunch of people in like berets and black turtlenecks performing like bad spoken word poetry. Yes, that's exactly. Yes, it's a it's a it was a movement in the 1960s of arts and poetry and free love and oh, God knows what. That is not the technical definition, but you guys get the point. So apparently he was like holed up with a bunch of biddies that were all into him, free loving it up, being a beatnik on the run. And everyone said that he was fascinating and had brilliant philosophies. Wow. Wow. So they found him in New York City being a beatnik. At that point, he was apprehended by the FBI and the NYPD just after Thanksgiving 1960. So this is early December now. Same year. Manzanita's gone in April. He remarries the end of July, runs off. And now it's still the same year. And he is being questioned for grand larceny and murder in New York City at this point. But he has brilliant philosophies. Brilliant philosophies and a nice black turtleneck. (laughs) The Seattle PD flew out to New York immediately and were permitted to interview him on December 2nd. The lead detective, a man named... Now, this is funny. This is the lead detective. His name's Herb Swindler. That's his last name. A swindler looking for a swindler. Detective Swindler felt like he was this close to getting a full confession from Guy during this conversation because Guy did say the following quote. He said... I'm morally guilty of Manzanita's and Dolores' death. And he also confirmed that he was the only person who might have had an opportunity to commit these crimes. Like straight up, he's like, yep, they're dead. Obviously, based on the evidence, looks like it's me. And I'm also morally guilty. So he seemed to be inching there. They thought that they were getting somewhere. That's like admitting it, though, isn't it? You can't say morally, like you'd have to say physically or personally responsible. Like, I don't understand. Isn't that just semantics? It is. And I mean, I think that a lot of times when somebody doesn't want to admit something to themselves, when they tell themselves lies, it really takes them a way to warm up to it. It's kind of like if somebody's cheating and they're like, yeah, I was talking to them, but it was totally platonic. And then they're like, well, I saw your text message. They weren't platonic. It's like, okay, well, I sexted, but we never met in person. It's like, well, actually, I have video camera footage of you guys together. Okay, well, we hung out, but we didn't actually put the P in the V. And they're like, well, this message says otherwise. In their vagina. (laughs) They're like, oh, 
okay, yeah, we had sex, but it was only once. It's like the truth comes out in little drips and drabs. I think that that's kind of where he was gearing up to. At least that's what the Seattle detective thought. He also confirmed after looking at a picture of the legs that had been found 150 miles away from Seattle that they did indeed appear to be his wives. Guy said that he believed 100% that Manzanita and Dolores were dead. And he also said, and I wish I was dead too. Oh. It's all seeming very guilty. And he admitted that it was he who had sealed the septic tank because there was a bad smell. So it's kind of like, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you get somebody to investigate why it smelled so poorly? Why would you just seal it up like you're hiding something? So unfortunately, he clammed up after them. I guess there was some issue between the Seattle PD and the New York PD. Like, so they wanted to come in and get a run at him. And the Seattle detective's like, no, I'm still talking to him. But they were on New York turf. So they were told to hit the bricks. And by the time the Seattle detective came back, they said that he had asked for a Jesuit priest to talk to. And then he clammed up completely and refused to say anything else after talking to the priest. And the only thing he said to the Seattle detective before he flew back West Coast was, they're dead and I'm alive and that's what's important. Wow. This is where it gets really fuzzy. We don't know why other than the state of Washington and, you know, maybe the assistant district attorney or district attorney did not feel like they could make a case. That's our only best guess. But Guy was never, never charged with the murders of his wife, Manzanita, and his stepdaughter, Dolores. I don't understand. Like, they found human body parts in his home and human tissue and bone fragments and blood that matched their blood type and Nothing. the legs. That's crazy to me. How? Why? It is very fuzzy. As far as I could read, it was simply on the state deciding that they could not win the case. That was it. It was the prosecutor of the area had some sort of record that they wanted to maintain, it looked like, at least to me. And they thought that it was essentially a no-body case, even though there were body parts, none of them were identifying features. So a good defense attorney could argue that Manzanita and Dolores were out there living their best lives and he had no idea how even though they got, parts got murdered into in his home there's blood yeah i don't get it myself i gotta tell you or at least i don't know if also they planned on maybe ever returning to the case because if it was me i would make sure that all of this stuff was bagged and preserved as well as possible because if he's only around 35 at this time, that's a long life that you can nail him later as science advances and you have DNA evidence eventually. <sighs> I really don't know. And you know what's even more infuriating? It's not even more infuriating, but it's equally infuriating is that he didn't even end up really serving time for the grand larceny. I don't understand. He apparently ended up getting convicted in 1961, but a judge suspended the sentence provided that he repay the money. Essentially, the thought being that they're never going to get their money back if he's not out there working. So it's better that he's out there working and paying them the money. But I could not find any records that said whether he actually did, in fact, repay his debt. But I would hazard a guess. No, because <laughs> he's a scumbag. After they were done interviewing him, did he just go back to his beatnik life? Like, what about Evelyn? I think he had to go back to Seattle to face the grand larceny charges. 
So this is kind of the end of the story that I read. This is why it's an Anne Rule short where we've reached the end of the road. Can you believe it? He got away with it. So Anne Rule suggests that, like I said, the state did not believe that there was sufficient evidence to prosecute Guy when they had the opportunity. So it appeared that Guy was able to charm, cheat, and subsequently slip out of any sort of reckoning for his murderous acts. And Rule went on to write that it appeared that Raul Guy Moldovan Rockwell went on to woo and wed others. Public records show that a Guy R. Moldovan was married to a woman named Terry in Nevada on February 16, 1974, when he would have been 49 years old. Seven years later, if this was him, which they believe it was, he married a different woman named Terry again under the name Milo Guy Maltby when he was 56 years old. Raul Guy's life of horror came to an end at 76 when he died in Salinas, California in March of 2002. Anne wrote, he took a lifetime of secrets with him to the grave, never to be revealed. Unfortunately, the grand dame of true crime writing did not live long enough herself discovered that that was, in fact, not true. Just this very year, 2022, the identity of the most famous unidentified murder victim in Massachusetts would be discovered, and the Lady of the Dunes would lead straight back to our rotten Romeo, Raul Guy Moldovan Rockwell. Insane. Insane. So when I was looking into this case, guys, I wanted to cover it even if it just dropped off where we just talked about being like, hey, do you think he murdered more people? This is crazy. Can you believe he didn't ever have to pay for what he did? Well, turns out we don't have to ask those questions, Andy, because he did murder someone else, at least one other person. So if you have not read about the Lady of the Dunes, I'm going to do a quick refresher here for you. I remember hearing about the case years ago on my favorite murder. I think Georgia told it on their show and being kind of fascinated by it because at the time it was completely unsolved. On July 26th, 1974, a 12-year-old girl was playing with a dog at the Race Point Dunes in Provincetown, Massachusetts. P-Town, what up? The dog caught a scent and ran off, leaving the girl to chase it. The dog ended up leading her to what she first believed was a deer carcass, but was in fact the nude body of a dead woman. The victim was laying face down on a towel as though she was sunbathing. A blue bandana and Wrangler jeans were resting underneath her head like a pillow, and the woman's long auburn reddish hair was tied back into a ponytail. She was resting on only one half of a beach towel, almost as though she'd been sharing it with someone else. There were also two sets of footprints leading up to the towel and a set of tire tracks about 50 yards away from the crime scene. So that, of course, suggested that someone else had been with her. The fact that somebody else had been with her was pretty easily discovered considering the state of her body and how it was impossible that she had caused these injuries herself. So that was a big giveaway as well. The woman had been nearly decapitated through strangulation and one side of her head had been brutally bashed in as though with a tool. The police believed that she had known her killer based on the fact that there was no sign of struggle. It did appear, however, that she had been sexually assaulted, but again, no struggle because it looked like she had been sexually assaulted 
after she had died. Ooh, gross. Gross. Most notably, both of the woman's hands and one of her forearms had been cut off and were missing. It also appeared that the killer had removed several of the victim's teeth. It was pretty clear that the murderer had been trying to conceal her identity. Okay, I didn't know if it was because of like gold teeth and bracelets or if it was concealing, but okay. It seemed that was the goal, although they did say that she had some nice dental work done. It was clear that that had been a woman that had at some point taken care of herself and invested in her teeth. Unfortunately, this discovery took place in the middle of muggy New England summer, and there was a lot of insect activity in the area, which you know those summers. Yeah. So it was hard to discover exactly how long the woman had been out there or exactly how old she was. They believed that she had been murdered roughly two weeks earlier and that she was likely between the ages of 25 and 40. But it was impossible to tell. They thought that it could even stretch to 20 years old to 49. Yeah, I mean, how are they going to tell? There was no way. I mean, out there with the elements and the insects for over two weeks in the end of July. So they could tell that she was about 5'6 to 5'8 and that she did have an athletic build. Law enforcement did work the heck out of this case and hundreds, if not thousands of leads were followed up and tons of missing women were ruled out. But no definitive answers were forthcoming. The mystery of the Lady of the Dunes became a point of nationwide fascination and this famous Jane Doe became the oldest unidentified homicide victim in the state of Massachusetts. Throughout the years, there was wild speculation about who the Lady of the Dunes was and who killed her. A couple of different serial killers were implicated. I believe Haddon Church even kind of sideways confessed to her murder. Other speculation included that she was a victim of Whitey Bulger and the mob, hence the teeth and the hands. There was even a rumor that the lady had been an extra in the 1975 Horror Hall of Fame movie Jaws which was shot in nearby Martha's Vineyard. According to the Wikipedia entry from The Lady of the Dunes, Joe Hill, who is the son of horror author Stephen King, was watching the movie's 4th of July crowd scene in 2015 when he spotted a woman who fit the relative description of the lady with the auburn hair and a ponytail, and she was wearing a blue bandana and jeans similar to the ones that she had been found with. Oh, my God. Joe reached out to authorities after reading The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases, because he thought, why the hell not? What if this is a lead? But it went nowhere. But I think it's certainly a very great bit of fascinating speculation. The Lady of the Dunes was buried in the fall of 1974, but she was exhumed in 1980, 2000, and again in 2010 for further investigation including to gather DNA. This woman cannot get a break. They're like, just keep knock, knock, knocking at the casket door here. Finally, in 2022, familial DNA was used to identify the lady and on Halloween of this year when we were together in South America, the FBI field office announced that the famous Jane Doe was Ruth Marie Terry, a Tennessee woman with ties to Michigan, Massachusetts, and California. Ruth was described as a beloved daughter, sister, and mother who left her Tennessee home in the 1970s to explore the world and travel the country. According to an NBC10 Boston article by Kathy Curran, her great niece, Brittany, said that Ruth was a loving person, 
She wanted to explore. She wanted more than what she thought her life was in Tennessee, she said. Unfortunately, that exploration had led her straight into the arms of a monster. Ruth Marie Terry, who also went by a pseudonym Terry, a.k.a. the Lady of the Dunes, had become the third wife of Guy Muldivan in February of 1974, the Terry that Anne Rule wrote about. While the authorities are still exploring the connection, it appears that the couple had only been married for roughly five months at the time that Guy murdered her. Guy also had ties to the area through his father, who had owned property in Provincetown. According to Kathy Curran's News 10 article, it was Guy who told Ruth's family that she had disappeared from their California home. The Terry family had never stopped looking for Ruth, even going all the way to the West Coast where they hired a private investigator. Guy had told Ruth's parents that she had left him to join a cult. Oh, my God. He's gross. He's gross, and he might be a serial killer. The FBI now believe that it is possible that Raul Guy Moldovan Rockwell, or whatever you want to call him, was perhaps a serial killer. He was also questioned and has since been implicated in the 1950 murders of 28-year-old truck driver Henry Red Baird and his 17-year-old girlfriend Barbara Jo Kelly. Well, someone did come forward to confess to the double murder years later. It was somebody already serving time in prison. The man was unable to lead the authorities to where he claimed he had left Barbara's remains. As a result, the case remains technically open and Humboldt County, California's oldest unsolved case. I don't get what he would benefit from saying that he killed them. Is it just like points in jail? Like, Yeah. False confessions, like out of the blue when there's not the police beating the shit out of you. Spontaneous, years later, unprompted confessions do not make sense to me. So I cannot tell you what the point was for that. And I think that they would have believed him too if he was able to take them to where he claims the murder happened. However, apparently there was a family in the area where he said he left the remains who said that at some point in the years that had passed, they had found some sort of bones in the area where their dog did. We don't know. So it's possible that the guy who confessed really did do it. But they decided to keep it open just in in case. And it turns out that Guy lived in that area during the time of the murders. Now, other sources, there was an SF Gate article about this by Katie Dowd, said that he did live in the area, but he was believed to have left several weeks before the murders. So that one might be a bit of a stretch. However, even if he's not responsible for those murders, I would bet you that he's killed others. I mean, has anyone checked on wife number four? Seriously. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a case where intimate partners were unfortunately at the most risk. So it just really is why this is a frustrating case, even though I really do hope they keep exploring it and trying to find other victims of Guy Moldovans. It's just really freaking angering that whoever the prosecutor was or whatever was going down and Washington State at that point that they decided not to prosecute him because that would have saved Ruth Marie Terry's life. Yeah. Prioritizing your track record is a disgusting precedent to set for other district attorney and prosecutors nationwide. I mean, it should always be looking out for the safety of your community. 
Yeah. And the greater population. Absolutely. And also, like I said before, at least continue to investigate, keep that cold case somewhere on the top of somebody's desk. And when DNA explodes, retest those materials. Because this guy was alive until 2002. It seems like they just didn't follow up. Yeah, they just stopped. I would have loved to see his old ass up at trial and have some peace. I mean, think about Ruth Marie Terry's family. They had no idea where she was until this year. This year. And they finally now know. And her poor parents had to pass away having no idea where their daughter was. And they looked until the end of their lives. And it's sad. I mean, Ruth Marie Terry would have been 86 years old today had she lived. And if he had been in prison, then potentially she could still be alive today enjoying her grandchildren. In the very least, she would have gotten many more years to find what exactly she was looking for. She seemed like somebody was searching for something. Let's also shout it out for Manzanita and poor Dolores. Dolores, whose life hadn't even begun, like rest in peace to those two poor women whose lives and murders have kind of been lost throughout time and are kind of just side notes in the story of the Lady of the Dunes. I mean, I'm sure Evelyn Emerson didn't feel very lucky when all of that went down, but she actually was. She got out with her life. He just needed money at that point more than whatever his murderous rage was. He needed to, like, get out. Yeah. It seems to me like he was somebody who had a temper, given that Manzanita was going to confront him about his infidelity and that it did not seem like he went to Provincetown with the intention of murdering her. Maybe he did. Maybe he said that they were going to go sunbathing and that wasn't what happened. But why marry somebody just to murder them five months later? Yeah, it's obviously, you know how these like crazy people get though. They like just start getting away with it and then are feeling unstoppable. So there could have even not been a strong motive towards the end. I think that he was... 20 years older than her, or at least in some significant fashion older than her because he was 49 years old when they got married. And maybe she was still searching for something and told him she wanted to take off and keep looking or maybe go back home to Tennessee, but she wasn't going to be with him anymore. And I mean, we can only speculate. We don't know what happened. But I 100% believe that he is responsible for her death and likely many others, or at least one other. Also, this is very weird. Two years after Ruth's murder, so in 1976, Guy published a bizarre book of sketches and poems called Cooking with Rump Oil. So some people on Reddit seem to believe that the poetry in this book suggests that he may have been somewhat cannibalistic. Boston News 10 found one page of this book that they believe may have referred to Ruth. It was called Cape Cod Shid. So I have it. We'll put it up on the Instagram. And this is what the poem says. Cape Cod Shid, out of the water and into the pan, the only way to cook the shid. After the shid is caught, anything over five minutes ends it. The sweet turpentine taste will turn to that of a burnt glove and the tender look will become one of despair. Remember, just five minutes. Don't cook the shid out of it. Seeing as she was found 
without her hands. They thought that the burnt glove and the look of affection to a look of despair was maybe a reference to him cooking those hands or parts of her body, which made me remember that Dolores's ribs were also partially burned. Guys, I can't tell you any more than that. There's some Reddit speculation. I, somebody on Reddit was trying desperately to find the book, and I only have that one page, but you can still find an entry for it on Amazon, which is weird. It says it's currently out of stock, but it's there. So what a rabbit hole, huh? Yeah, I really am so impressed and thankful that we live in a time when DNA evidence and technology and forensic science is so advanced because I feel like he would not have been able to get away with all of that currently. Absolutely not. And even think about him being able to just use a fake name and get on a plane and go wherever he wanted. To. Or marry several times. I mean, I remember when we were getting married, having to fill out all of the stuff and get the documents in order and on the thing it even said, have you been married before? Do you have any open, like, current marriages that you're in? Like, I just can't imagine that in today's system and society that you can get away with all of this nonsense. I think it's a lot harder, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that this is the last that we will hear about this guy. And they have not yet conclusively determined that he is the murderer of the Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Marie Terry. But I think it's pretty obvious. And I'm really mad that the karma fairy did not visit him in this lifetime. But his obituary did say that he passed away after an extended illness. So I hope it hurt like hell. I'm sure he was, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, rotting from the inside. So in conclusion, Happy New Year, y'all. I think that it's a perfect time for a new you. Maybe some old cases. And... Let's all collectively not call our exes on New Year's Eve, okay? <laughs> Deal. I think we could also just make sure to see and steer clear of all of the red flags. And if your friends are having a hard time with that, remind them. It's always good to see those warning signs and act on them. Yeah, absolutely. And stay with our sisters in solidarity to share our gut feelings about all of this. So... As always, trust your gut when it comes to love so you and your besties don't get murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.